0: Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Witnesses of History, in which it gets very hot in Italy on a couple of occasions, starting with Tacitus' report from 64 AD. Nero now tried to make it appear that Rome was his favourite abode. He gave feasts in public places, as if the whole city were his own home. But the most prodigal and notorious banquet was given by Tigellinus. To avoid repetitious accounts of extravagance, I shall describe it as a model of its kind. The entertainment took place on a raft constructed on Marcus Agrippa's lake. It was towed about by other vessels with gold and ivory fittings. Their rowers were degenerates, sorted according to age and vice. Jejeunas had also collected birds and animals from remote countries and even the products of the ocean. On the quays were brothels stocked with high-ranking ladies. Opposite them could be seen naked prostitutes indecently posturing and gesturing. At nightfall, the woods and houses nearby echoed with singing and blazed with lights. Nero was already corrupted by every lust, natural and unnatural. But now he refuted any surmises that no further degradation was possible for him. For a few days later, he went through a formal wedding ceremony with one of the perverted gang called Pythagoras. The emperor, in the presence of witnesses, put on the bridal veil dowry, marriage bed, wedding torches, all were there. Indeed, everything was public, which even in a natural union is veiled by night. Disaster followed. Whether it was accidental or caused by a criminal act on the part of the emperor is uncertain. Both versions have supporters now started the most terrible and destructive fire which Rome had ever experienced. It began in the circus, where it adjoins the Palatine and Caelian hills. Breaking out in shops, selling inflammable goods, and fanned by the wind, the conflagration instantly grew and swept the whole length of the circus. There were no ward mansions or temples or any other obstructions which could arrest it. First, the fire swept violently over the level spaces. Then it climbed the hills, but returned to ravage the lower ground again. It outstripped every countermeasure, the ancient city's narrow winding streets and irregular blocks encouraged its progress. Terrified, shrieking women, helpless, old and young, people intent on their own safety, people unselfishly supporting invalids or waiting for them, fugitives and lingerers alike, all heightened the confusion when people looked back menacing flames sprang up before them or outflanked them when they escaped to a neighboring quarter the fire followed even districts believed remote proved to be involved finally with no idea where or what to flee they crowded onto the country roads or lay in the fields some who had lost everything even their food for the day could have escaped but preferred to die So did others, who had failed to rescue their loved ones. Nobody dared fight the flames. Attempts to do so were prevented by menacing gangs. Torches, too, were openly thrown in by men crying that they acted under orders. Perhaps they had received orders, or they may just have wanted to plunder unhampered. Nero was at Antium. He returned to the city only when the fire was approaching the mansion he had built to link the gardens of Messinus to the Palatine. The flames could not be prevented from overwhelming the whole of the Palatine, including his palace. Nevertheless, for the relief of the homeless, fugitive masses, he threw open the field of Mars, including Agrippa's public buildings and even his own gardens. Nero also constructed emergency accommodation for the destitute multitude. Food was brought from Ostia and neighbouring towns, and the price of corn was cut to less than one quarter sesterce a pound. Yet these measures, for all their popular character, earned no gratitude, for a rumour had spread that while the city was burning, Nero had gone on his private stage and, comparing modern calamities with ancient, had sung of the destruction of Troy." By the sixth day, enormous demolitions had confronted the raging flames with bare ground and open sky, and the fire was finally stamped out at the foot of the Esquiline Hill. But before panic had subsided or hope revived, flames broke out again in the more open regions of the city. Here, there were fewer casualties, but the destruction of temples and pleasure arcades was even worse. The new conflagration, caused additional ill-feeling because it started on Tegelinus' estate in the Emelian district. For people believed that Nero was ambitious to found a new city to be called after himself. Of Rome's 14 districts, only four remained intact. Three were levelled to the ground. The other seven were reduced to a few scorched and mangled ruins. Well, before we conclude with another Italian disaster, We'll take an August seaside holiday look at the Norfolk coast in 1897 by W. H. Hudson. The little town was overcrowded with late summer visitors, all eager for the sea, yet compelled to waste so much precious time shut up in flats and apartments, and at every appearance of a slight improvement in the weather, they would pour out of the houses and the green slope would be covered with a crowd of many hundreds, all hurrying down to the beach. The crowd was composed mostly of women, about three to every man, I should say, and their children, and it was one of the most interesting crowds I'd ever come across, on account of the large number of persons in it of a peculiarly fine type which Chance had brought together at that spot. It was the large English blonde, and there were so many individuals of this type that they gave a character to the crowd, so that those of a different physique and colour appeared to be fewer than there were, and were almost overlooked. They came from various places around the country, in the North and the Midlands, and appeared to be of the well-to-do classes. They, or many of them, were with their families, but without their lords. They were mostly tall and large in every way, very white-skinned with light or golden hair and large, light-blue eyes. A common character of these women was their quiet, reposeful manner. They walked and talked and rose up and sat down and did everything, in fact, with an air of deliberation. They gazed in a slow, steady way at you and were dignified, some even majestic, and were like a herd of large, beautiful white cows." The children too, especially the girls, some almost as tall as their large mothers, though still in short frocks, were very fine. The one pastime of these was paddling, and it was a delight to see their bare feet and legs. The legs of those who had been longest on the spot, probably several weeks in some instances, were of a deep nutty brown hue, suffused with pink. After these, a gradation of colour, light brown tinged with buff, pinkish buff and cream, like the gloire de Dijon rose, and so on to the delicate tender pink of the clover blossom. And finally, the purest ivory white of the latest arrivals, whose skin had not yet been caressed and coloured by sun and wind. We remain in August, the 24th in fact, in 79 AD and Pliny the Younger's report on the consequences of the eruption of Vesuvius which destroyed the towns of Pompeii and Herculaneum. My uncle was stationed at Missenum, in active command of the fleet. On the 24th of August, in the early afternoon, my mother drew his attention to a cloud of unusual size and appearance. He'd been out in the sun, had taken a cold bath and lunched while lying down, and was then working at his books. He called for his shoes and climbed up to a place which would give him the best view of the phenomenon. It was not clear at that distance from which mountain the cloud was rising. It was afterwards known to be Vesuvius. Its general appearance can best be expressed as being like an umbrella pine, for it rose to a great height on a sort of trunk and then split off into branches. I imagine because it was thrust upwards by the first blast and then left unsupported as the pressure subsided, or else it was borne down by its own weight so that it spread out and gradually dispersed. In places it looked white, elsewhere blotched and dirty, according to the amount of soil and ashes it carried with it. My uncle's scholarly acumen saw at once that it was important enough for a closer inspection, and he ordered a boat to be made ready, telling me I could come with him if I wished. I replied that I preferred to go on with my studies and as it happened he had himself given me some writing to do. As he was leaving the house, he was handed a message from Rectina, wife of Tascus, whose house was at the foot of the mountain, so that escape was impossible except by boat. She was terrified by the danger threatening her and implored him to rescue her from her fate. He changed his plans and what he had begun in a spirit of inquiry he completed as a hero. He gave orders for the warships to be launched and went on board himself with the intention of bringing help to many more people besides Rectina, for this lovely stretch of coast was thickly populated. He hurried to the place, which everyone else was hastily leaving, steering his course straight for the danger zone. He was entirely fearless, describing each new movement and phase of the portent to be noted down exactly as he observed them, Ashes were already falling hotter and thicker as the ships drew near, followed by bits of pumice and blackened stone charred and cracked by the flames. Then suddenly they were in shallow water, and the shore was blocked by the debris from the mountain. For a moment my uncle wondered whether to turn back. But when the helmsman advised this, he refused, telling him that fortune stood by the courageous and they must make for Pomponius at Stabiae. He was cut off there by the breadth of the bay, for the shore gradually curves round a basin filled by the sea, so that he was not as yet in danger, though it was clear that this would come nearer as it spread. Pomponius had therefore already put his belongings on board ship, intending to escape if the contrary wind fell. This wind was of course full in my uncle's favour, and he was able to bring his ship in. He embraced his terrified friend, cheered and encouraged him, and, thinking he could calm his fears by showing him his own composure, gave orders that he was to be carried to the bathroom. After his bath, he lay down and dined. He was quite cheerful, or any rate he pretended to be, which was no less courageous. Meanwhile, on Mount Vesuvius, broad sheets of fire and leaping flames blazed at several points, their bright glare emphasised by the darkness of night. My uncle tried to allay the fears of his companions by repeatedly declaring that there was nothing but bonfires left by the peasants in their terror, or else empty houses on fire in the districts that had been abandoned. Then he went to rest, and certainly slept, for he was a stout man, and his breathing was rather loud and heavy, and he could be heard by people coming and going outside his door. By this time, the courtyard giving access to his room was full of ashes mixed with pumice stones so that its level had risen, and if he stayed in the room any longer, he would never have got out. He was wakened, came out, and joined Pompanius and the rest of the household who had sat up all night. They debated whether to stay indoors or take their chance in the open, for the buildings were now shaking with violent shocks and seemed to be swaying to and fro as if they were torn from their foundations. Outside, on the other hand, there was the danger of falling pumice stones. Even though these were light and porous, however, after comparing the risks, they chose the latter. In my uncle's case, one reason outweighed the other, but for the others it was a choice of fears. As a protection against falling objects, they put pillows on their heads, tied down with cloths. Elsewhere, There was daylight by this time, but they were still in darkness, blacker and denser than any ordinary night, which they relieved by lighting torches and various kinds of lamp. My uncle decided to go down to the shore and investigate on the spot the possibility of any escape by sea, but he found the waves still wild and dangerous. A sheet was spread on the ground for him to lie down, and he repeatedly asked for cold water to drink. Then the flames and smell of sulphur which gave warning of the approaching fire drove the others to take flight and roused him to stand up. He stood, leaning on two slaves, and then suddenly collapsed. I imagine because the dense fumes choked his breathing by blocking his windpipe, which was constitutionally weak and narrow, and often inflamed. When daylight returned on the 26th, two days after the last day he'd been seen, his body was found intact and uninjured still fully clothed, and it looking more like sleep than death. Meanwhile, my mother and I were at Mycenaeum. After my uncle's departure, I spent the rest of the day with my books, as this was my reason for staying behind. Then I took a bath, dined, and then dozed fitfully for a while. For several days past, there had been earth tremors, which were not particularly alarming because they were frequent in Campania. But that night, the shocks were so violent that everything felt as if it were not only shaken but overturned. My mother hurried into my room and found me already getting up to wake her if she was still asleep. We sat down in the forecourt of the house between the buildings and the sea close by. I don't know whether I should call this courage or folly on my part. I was only 17 at the time, but I called for a volume of Livy and went on reading as if I had nothing else to do. I even went on with the extracts I've been making. Up came a friend of my uncle's who had just come from Spain to join him. When he saw us sitting there and me actually reading, he scolded us both, me for my foolhardiness and my mother for allowing it. Nevertheless, I remained absorbed in my book. By now it was dawn, but the light was still dim and faint. The buildings round us were already tottering and the open space we were in was too small for us not to be in real and imminent danger if the house collapsed. This finally decided us to leave the town. We were followed by a panic-stricken mob of people wanting to act on someone else's decision in preference to their own, a point in which fear looks like prudence. They hurried with us on our way by pressing hard behind in a dense crowd. Once beyond the buildings we stopped and there we had some extraordinary experiences which thoroughly alarmed us. The carriages we had ordered to be brought out begun to run in different directions through the gro- though the ground was quite level and could not remain stationary even when wedged with stones.' We also saw the sea sucked away and apparently forced back by the earthquake. At any rate, it receded from the shore so that quantities of sea creatures were left stranded on dry sand. On the landward side, a fearful black crowd was rent by forked and quivering bursts of flame and parted to reveal great tongues of fire like flashes of lightning magnified in size. At this point, my uncle's friend from Spain spoke up still more urgently. If your brother, if your uncle is still alive, he will want you both to be saved. If he is dead, he would want you to survive him. Why put off your escape? We replied that we would not think of considering our own safety as long as we were uncertain of his. Without waiting any longer, our friend rushed off and hurried out of danger as fast as he could. Soon afterwards, the cloud sank down to earth and covered the sea. It had already blotted out Capri and hidden the promontory of Misenum from sight. Then my mother implored, entreated and commanded me to escape as best I could. A young man might escape, whereas she was old and slow and could die in peace as long as she had not been the cause of my death too. I refused to save myself without her and grasping her hand forced her to quicken her pace. She gave in reluctantly, blaming herself for delaying me. Ashes were already falling, not as yet very thickly. I looked round, a dense black cloud was coming up behind us, spreading over the earth like a flood. Let us leave the road while we can still see, I said, or we shall be knocked down and trampled underfoot in the dark by the crowd behind. We'd scarcely sat down to rest when darkness fell, not the dark of a moonless or cloudy night but as if the lamp had been put out in a close room you could hear the shrieks of women the wailing of infants and the shouting of men some were calling their parents others their children or their wives trying to recognize them by their voices people bewailed their own fate or that of their relatives and there were some who prayed for death in their terror of dying Many besought the aid of the gods, but still more imagined there were no gods left, and that the universe was plunged into eternal darkness for evermore. There were people, too, who added to the real perils by inventing fictitious dangers. Some reported that parts of Mycena had collapsed, or another part was on fire, and though their tales were false, they found others to believe them. A gleam of light returned, but we took this to be a warning of the approaching flames rather than daylight. However, the flames remained some distance off. Then darkness came on once more and ashes began to fall again, this time in heavy showers. We rose from time to time and shook them off, otherwise we should have been buried and crushed beneath their weight. I could boast that not a groan or cry of fear escaped me in these perils, but I admit that I derived some poor consolation in my mortal lot from the belief that the whole world was dying with me and I with it. At last, the darkness thinned and dispersed like smoke or cloud. Then there was genuine daylight and the sun actually shone out, but yellowish as it was during an eclipse. We were terrified to see everything changed, buried deep in ashes like snowdrifts. We returned to Mycenum, where we attended to our physical needs as best we could and then spent an anxious night alternating between hope and fear. Fear predominated, for the earthquakes went on and several hysterical individuals made their own and other people's calamities seem ludicrous in comparison with their own frightful predictions. But even then, in spite of the dangers we'd been through and was still expecting, my mother and I had still no intention of leaving until we had news of my uncle. Of course, these details are not important enough for history and you will read them without any idea of recording them. If they seem scarcely worth putting in a letter, you have only yourself to blame for asking for them. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Mattias. www. Dot